happy Halloween and welcome to the one year anniversary episode of Stories from the Mortuary. If you've been here since the Horhoronski Ripper on YouTube, thank you so much for sticking with me. And if you're new here, welcome. Sit back, relax, and make sure you have the proper personal protective equipment as you take a journey with me to the mortuary. I'm your host, Alani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. To kick off this episode, I wanted to shout out a book I've recently come across called Confessions of a Prison Cook, a fusion of food and crime by Erica Summerfield and Philip Longo. I wanted to read a little excerpt for you to get you into the Halloween mood since there's a chapter on holiday murders, so here it goes. Holiday kills are hard to digest, despite murder mystery dinner theater being a top destination on New Year's Eve. Is it excessive eggnog, the push to act merry, or old-fashioned money woes that cause everyone's Uncle Eddie to snap? Maybe it's mere mention of the word. Holiday, Florida has a crime rate 72% higher than the state's other cities. Convicted double murderer Michael Lambricks, who invited his victims to his Florida home for spaghetti dinner before doing away with them, asked, before execution, to paint Easter eggs, hang Christmas stockings on the execution table, and have his lethal injection drug be dyed green for St. Patrick's Day. In addition to asking to trick-or-treat in his cell block, his last meal request was a Thanksgiving dinner. In April alone, Americans celebrate Caramel Popcorn Day, Empanada Day, National Peanut Butter and Jelly Day, Chinese Almond Cookie Day, and National Chinese Fondue Day. The Dutch celebrate New Year's Day by devouring fried oil balls, while the Viennese fill up on pig-shaped sweets to start the year. Poles choose pickled herring on the first of the year, while people from Madrid eat a grape for every toll of the midnight bell. People die every New Year's in Japan after choking on traditional steamed rice, and more deaths occur on December 31st from flying champagne corks than year-round spider bites. The following crimes are unseasonable, at best. Murder on Valentine's Day is particularly heartless. A New York University professor was accused of mailing poisoned V-Day chocolates to the judge who jailed him. A Baptist minister executed his wife in 2013 on St. Valentine's Day, leading police to believe the cold-hearted crime was a gift to his 20-year-old sweetheart. Parents of a Parkland, Florida school shooting victim made heart-shaped candies adorned with anti-gun slogans like, Don't shoot, and he's gone, to honor their son's February 14th death. An extortion gang terrorized Tokyo by placing cyanide-laced sweets on store shelves on Valentine's Eve. The packets were marked, you'll die if you eat this. Bricks broken during Chicago's 1929 St. Valentine's Day massacre were used to build Canada's largest barbecue restaurant. On February 14th, circa 270 AD, Roman priest Valentinus was beheaded for conducting secret marriage ceremonies. A 17-year-old girl prepared collard grains with the side of termite killer for grandma on Easter Sunday in 2014. The poisoning was revenge for having her cell phone confiscated. One four-year-old was left bloodied after a raging Easter egg hunt went wrong in a calm Connecticut town, and a German elder, annoyed at children stealing Easter toys from his yard, sprayed holiday chocolate bunnies with rat poison as a treat for the curious kitties. The 1975 Easter Sunday Massacre occurred inside a private home in Ohio. A mass murderer killed 11 members of his family who had staged an Easter egg hunt on their grandmother's lawn earlier that day. One child was found by police with a chocolate Easter egg in his lifeless hand. President Zachary Taylor enjoyed a July 4, 1850 celebration ingesting copious amounts of iced milk and cherries. He died five days later from gastroenteritis. 
Football star turned murderer Aaron Hernandez scored free cream of wheat and meatloaf in jail on Independence Day. An 18-year-old Domino's delivery girl set out on July 4, 1982 with a stack of pizzas never to be seen again. Witnesses discovered her car near a fireworks show with crushed Domino's pizza boxes nearby. Eating 1,627 Halloween candy corns can administer a lethal dose of sugar. Surely a better way to go than being poisoned by the candy man. A Texas dad who offed his 8-year-old son on Halloween in 1974 with cyanide-laced pixie sticks to get his hands on $20,000 in life insurance. Pop also gave cyanide-laced candy to his daughter and three other children to have his son's murder appear random. A man who attempted to rob an Illinois Subway sandwiches in a Halloween ghost mask looked frightful after being burned with a pot of hot soup. One of the nation's top 1031 destinations, Terror Behind the Walls, is a tour of Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. The stockade speakeasy serves beverages inside Al Capone's actual cell block. Turkey Day turned murky when five Long Island teens hurled a stolen 20-pound frozen bird off a bridge, forcing an oncoming driver to undergo a Thanksgiving Day tracheotomy. Gobble up this real-life recipe for fried hand pies. On Thanksgiving 1991, 23-year-old Omaima Nelson butchered and cooked her California groom. The Egyptian model boiled and burned her husband's hands in a deep fat fryer to remove his fingertips. Authorities found the man's head in Nelson's freezer, garnished with leftover holiday meats and sauces. The killer's neighbor recalled the garbage disposal grinding all weekend. A New Mexico woman faced charges after stabbing a wheelchair-bound man in the eye with a plastic candy cane. Not as dangerous as a candy cane shank, eight inches long, sharpened to a 20-degree point, which can really be bad for your holiday health. In the house on Sorority Row, the killer uses the sharp end of a candy cane to kill. In Black Christmas, a sharpened candy cane wastes a prison guard. Does this sweet know no mercy? Candy canes also contain xylitol, which poisons over 6,000 dogs a year. A wife spiked her beloved's cherry drink with antifreeze on a cold December 25th. A monstrous mom was convicted of hiring men to finish off her four-year-old during a nativity trip to eat pizza. A Florida woman, employed to buy groceries for a family friend, strangled the victim and buried her under a pile of Christmas gifts. Actor Charlie Sheen was a lot luckier. He enjoyed prime rib and Cornish hen inside his Aspen jail cell on Christmas. Twenty years after the 1996 Christmas slaying of John Benet Ramsey, Colorado police are unraveling why undigested pineapple found in the tot's tummy may be key to solving her murder. Patsy Ramsey had no memory of serving fruit to her child, though the bowl held the fingerprints of mom and nine-year-old son, Burke. Pineapple was not served at the party the family attended that night. And that was chapter 66, titled Candy Caned, from a book titled Confession of a Prison Cook, A Fusion of Food and Crime. It's a really fun read. I've never read anything that intersected food and crime, so please check them out on Amazon, and I'll have the link to where you can find the book on Amazon, along with all of my sources for this episode in the show notes. Before we get into today's story, I do need your help finding another missing Indigenous woman. Sharon Bald Eagle ran away from her hometown of Eagle Butte, South Dakota on September 18, 1984, along with a 15-year-old friend named Sandy. The girls were hitchhiking together in Casper, Wyoming, when they were picked up by a truck driver named Royal Russell Long. Royal took the two girls to his home in Evansville, Wyoming, and fed them. Sandy stated he then offered them $100 for sexual services. 
When the girls refused, he tied them up at gunpoint, beat Sharon, and raped Sandy. Sandy escaped and went for help, but by the time police arrived at the residence, Royal and Sharon were gone. A week later, Royal was apprehended in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Sharon wasn't with him, and he said he didn't know her whereabouts. When asked for his side of the story, Royal said Sharon and Sandy had told them they were 18 and 19 and that Sandy agreed to have sex with him for $100. After the sex act took place, Sandy demanded $200 from him and threatened to accuse him of rape if he didn't give her the money. And she told him she and Sharon told him they were actually only 15 and 12 years old. Royal said there was a struggle, although he didn't hit the girls, and his nose was bloodied. He threatened them with a pistol and tied them up. He then took a nap, and when he woke up, he discovered Sandy had escaped. He carried Sharon out to his truck and drove her to Cheyenne, then put her on a light-colored truck bound for Dallas, Texas, and this is the last time he ever saw her. He said he didn't realize he was wanted for kidnapping and rape until he went back to Casper. According to Royal, after realizing the police were looking for him, he drove to Amarillo, Texas, trying to find Sharon or anyone who might have seen her. Authorities were unable to find anything to support his story. They couldn't identify the truck driver Sharon supposedly got a ride to Dallas with, or find anyone who's seen this truck driver or his truck. Prosecutors considered charging Royal with Sharon's murder, but they decided against it, and Sharon's father stated he believed his daughter was alive. Royal pleaded guilty to two counts of kidnapping for the purpose of committing indecent liberties with a minor, and was sentenced to two life terms in prison. Royal is also a possible suspect in the disappearances of Deborah Meyer and Carlene Brown, who vanished from Wyoming in 1974, and he's the prime suspect in the disappearances of Cinda Pallet and Charlotte Kinsey, who vanished from the Oklahoma State Fairgrounds in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, on September 26, 1981. He was charged with kidnapping and murdering Cinda and Charlotte after his 1985 arrest, but the charges were dismissed for lack of evidence. He died of a heart attack in prison in 1993. Sharon's father went to visit him shortly before his death, but Royal refused to speak to him. Sharon is the oldest of four siblings and had just begun her first year at Brainerd Indian School in Hot Springs, South Dakota when she disappeared. Her father's still alive and searched for her all over the country after her disappearance, traveling as far as Arizona. There were possible sightings of her in Wisconsin and Colorado in the years following her disappearance. She's never been found, and foul play is suspected in her case. Sharon was born May 27, 1972, was 12 years old when she went missing, and would be 50 years old today. She was 5 foot 3 inches and 110 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She was last seen wearing a black and yellow top with a tiger stripe pattern and black shoes and carrying a red bag. She has black hair and brown eyes and her ears are pierced. If you have any information regarding Sharon Bald Eagle's whereabouts, please contact the Fall River County Sheriff's Office at 605-745-4444. When we return from the break, we'll get into this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore memento underscore mori with two eyes 
That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. Mark Twitchell doesn't remember the exact place and time it was that he decided to become a serial killer, but he remembers the sensation that hit him when he committed to the decision. It was a rush of pure euphoria. He felt lighter, less stressed at the freedom of the prospect. There was something about urgently exploring his dark side that greatly appealed to him. He thought himself to be such a methodical planner and thinker, the very challenge itself was enticing to behold. This realization was just the last in a series of new discoveries he made about himself. He felt that he was different somehow from the rest of humanity. He felt no such emotions as empathy or sympathy towards others, for example. Of course, when it came to actual one-on-one conversations with therapists, he had to lie. The last thing he needed to do was air out all of his darkest fantasies and half-formed plans to someone who's legally obligated to contact the authorities if they think a patient will do harm to themselves or others. Nevertheless, deception aside, it was a useful exercise to get to know his label better. So here he was, armed with this new insight into his inner self and an exhilarating new hobby that he sought to undertake. He thought long and hard to come up with a system that would work for him, a method that would ensure he would have his playtime and keep from getting caught. It didn't take long before he settled on an MO. He would use online dating to rope in his victims. Once he came up with that one clear starting point, all of the other pieces needed to be tended to. He began to ask himself a series of questions designed to get him to consider every possible angle. He wanted to have every step in the process already planned out from start to finish, because improvising would be bad and lead to sloppiness. He had to have an order, a plan, something that would bring calm to a chaotic situation. First question, who did he want to target? At first, he considered married men looking to cheat on their wives. In one way, he'd be taking out the trash, doling out justice to those who, on some level, deserved what they got. But the logic of the situation denied this possibility. After all, people who are expected home at a certain hour tend to get reported as missing, and there's other factors that would lead to an investigation he didn't want. No. He had to choose people whose entire lives he could infiltrate and eliminate evidence of his existence from all levels. Mark finally settled on middle-aged single men who lived alone. His reasons were numerous. For one thing, they would be easy to manipulate, easy to seduce under his fake female disguises. They were also the most likely targets to have the most expendable money in their bank accounts, a tidbit he would use to advantage later on. Finally, by living alone, once they were out of the picture, he could easily enter their living spaces undetected with no forced entry and remove all sorts of valuable items from the premises. Oh yes, he was in this for the profit. It had always been his attitude that no hobby or venture should ever be done without expected return on investment. For many years, he crafted elaborate Halloween costumes, faithful screen-accurate recreations of very big blockbuster movie icons. The result of his efforts in these costumes were various first prizes in costume contests that resulted in cash payouts worth at least 40 times what he spent to make each outfit. This would be no different. He had expenses with this new hobby, and he would make sure that he generated a profit from it to recoup and eclipse his costs. That was the next step in the process for being fully prepared, a detailed shopping list of all the items he would need to carry out his plans. First off, he needed a location. He scoured listings to find something suitable. 
He started looking in regular secure storage, but the video surveillance and inability to get his victims there smoothly threw that idea out the window quickly. When he finally found his location, it couldn't have been any more perfect. He found himself a double detached garage for rent in the south of the city. It was tucked away in a quiet neighborhood on a lot with a house occupied by tenants who couldn't even read English, much less speak it. Everything, he decided, would take place there. The approach, the apprehension, and the kill as well as preparation for disposal of the body could all be done in relative seclusion from this one building. Total privacy. He immediately went to work removing the address plank from the back, blocking out all the windows with boards and duct tape, and replacing locks. The back driveway wasn't even paved, it was just a bed of gravel with grass growing out of it. The entire surrounding area was blocked out of sight from neighbors with high, thick fences, and the entire block was dead starting at 8 o'clock at night. His shopping list was very thorough. He went out to several different stores to avoid buying all of his items from one location, and he paid cash to avoid a paper trail just in case. He bought a street hockey mask that he would soon cut the mouth out of and paint gold streaks in for dramatic effect. He also bought a basic dark green hoodie, something comfortable with pockets that hides distinctive marks, body type, and hair. Finally, he purchased two sets of disposable overalls for what was sure to be a messy cleanup process, and he would use the plastic bags all this came in to wrap his shoes for the process. He bought a hunter's game processing kit, which he felt was ideal for this scenario. It reduces the spatter caused by power tools and reduces the noise level. In Mark's mind, there's something more gratifying about sawing through tendons and bone with your bare hands than using something else that takes the fun out of the work. His kill knife was different, though. He wanted the weapon used for the deed itself to be simple, elegant, and beautiful in its own way, so he dropped by a military surplus store and picked up a well-crafted hunting knife with an 8-inch blade. He would use this weapon to cleanly and simply slice open a gash in the victim's neck, allowing them to bleed out quickly and with no pain. He's not a torture guy. The noise level from the screams is not his thing at all. He would only resort to that if they're still alive after apprehension, but won't give him the information he asked for. He used several rolls of painter's plastic sheeting to prep his kill room. Took at least six rolls of packing tape and just as many rolls of duct tape, as well as two boxes of contractor-grade hefty bags. He picked up a stun baton because he thought that would render his targets without use of their muscles quickly and painlessly. He also bought an extra realistic airsoft pistol, something that could very easily be mistaken for the real thing, especially in low light, just for that extra edge. He made sure to acquire construction materials for his custom furniture. He went to town designing and building a rather sturdy four foot by six foot six inch table with stainless steel finish and angle iron edging. He also welded a rather mean looking chair and another table was left there by the realty company, which he used to stay organized on. Finally, he ordered a 45-gallon steel drum, which would be the final resting place for the body parts before he incinerated them. He was all set, prepared as he could be. Mark diligently set up his kill room, creating the plastic bubble he needed to create his nasty mayhem. The trap was set, and now it was time to bait the hook. He downloaded an IP address blocker first and foremost. He did it so that if any of his playmates' disappearances were ever actually investigated, there wouldn't be this electronic trail leading the police directly back to him in his little workshop of horrors. Once activated, he created all new email addresses and dating site profiles for his dark plan. It was so easy it was almost insulting. But really, who thinks to look outside their pond when they go out fishing? No one. 
He did a quick search for females that matched what he wanted to represent in other cities around the world, and when he found someone he liked, he copied their photos and used them in his new online identity as whoever it was he wanted to be. Mark always changed things up. He never used the same profile for more than one victim at a time, and he generated new email addresses as well, just in case. After a victim is removed from the world neatly and cleanly, he would erase his accounts and every trace they left behind. Sure, the mother servers may or may not have an imprinted image, but even if they checked, they wouldn't trace him. As soon as the profiles go up, within 24 hours, the responses come in like a flood. He reviewed the messages sent and chose his victims based on age, body type, profession, status, and living situation. He was seeking a single man in his late 30s to early 40s who is self-employed, lives alone, and stands between 5'7 and 5'11 with an average body type weighing in between 150 and 180 pounds. This would be his ideal target. Giles Tetralt was on Plenty of Fish, a dating website, when he came upon a gorgeous blonde named Sheena. Sheena asked him to pick her up from her residence at a prescribed time on a particular night of the week, and then gave him detailed instructions on how to find the place. Sheena explained that her landlord had the property set up where the back gate was broken and padlocked, and there was nowhere in front to park because of a no parking zone and a bus stop across the street. She told him she would leave the garage door open for him to come in through, and then to come to the back door of the house. The message was received and confirmed, and Mark waited. Generally, he was quite pleased with himself. He felt that he had a perfectly formulated plan, and he was fully prepared. He adorned his specialty mask. It served the double purpose of facial protection and identity shield. He wanted to give the victim a false sense of security and thinking they would be let go since he cared about hiding who he was. He slipped the green jacket on and pulled the hood over his head, resting it comfortably over his brow. He placed a knife holster with the blade in it into his belt and pulled on his fine leather gloves. His kill room was perfectly prepped. Plastic sheeting taped together and around his table. A large green cloth screwed into the drywall ceiling to shield view of it from his guest's line of sight and to shield him too, of course. He now stood but a few feet away from the front door, which he had locked. The plan was to wait in the shadow of the curtain until Giles approached the door and shock him with a stun baton, followed by a sleeper hold that would sap away his consciousness so that he could tape him up and set him on the table. The last thought that crossed his mind before Giles pulled into the driveway had nothing to do with the event itself, but rather was a mental note that he would need to remember to get a stock of paper towels for miscellaneous cleanup in the future. The car's engine rumbled and its headlights shone bright in the lowering dusk. Mark thought if Giles' headlights were on a delay self-shutoff like his, that he would see more than he wanted him to, which still wasn't much. Just a few crates of tools and paint cans, normal garage accessories. But his headlights turned off as his engine petered out. Mark heard the sound of the car door opening and closing, then the footsteps that followed. Mark's head rushed with adrenaline. His stomach had a half-second flutter of butterflies before his resolve strengthened and he stood there ominous in the dark, prepared to strike with his stun baton fully extended and the safety off. The typical taser guns used by police carry a charge of 50,000 volts. The stun baton Mark had boasted 800,000 volts. Mark's confidence in his plan was misplaced. He took two swift, silent steps toward his target and pressing the baton across the back of his neck, pulled the trigger. It shocked and jumped, but did little more than merely alert Giles to what was really going on. It didn't render his muscles unusable, and he fought back. 
Mark had the upper hand. He had fighting experience and had a home field advantage. The confusion played to his benefit and Mark struck him repeatedly. He dropped the baton and punched him several times in the side of the head, but Giles still wouldn't go down. He broke free and ran for the door, so Mark reached into his pocket and withdrew the gun. Mark pointed it straight at him and all of a sudden Giles took him seriously, his eyes wide. Mark commanded him to get down on the floor, to which he obeyed quickly. If he lifted his head even the slightest bit, Mark warned against it. He removed his gloves and went for the duct tape. He tore a piece off and slipped it over Giles' eyes. It was then that Mark told Giles that if he did what Mark told him to do, that he would let him live. But Giles continued to struggle. The shortcomings of this venture all came crashing down on Mark. Overestimating the stun baton is a mistake he wouldn't repeat, and he decided he wouldn't put up with the struggle either. Mark thought he should have just pounded Giles in the back of the head while he was down until he lay unconscious on the floor. Giles got back to his feet, having removed the duct tape, and when Mark pointed the gun at him again, Giles grabbed it. He made a few feeble attempts to hit Mark and tried one kick aimed at Mark's groin that was deflected. Mark delivered a headbutt to Giles' face, but he broke free again. Mark clutched onto his jacket, but Giles shook himself loose of it and took off for the opening in the door. Giles made it into the driveway and Mark followed him out, not caring any more who might see him. As Giles was fumbling on the ground, Mark grabbed him by the leg as if to drag him back into the garage. Giles tried to grab at Mark's mask and came quite close to pulling it off. Mark broke the grasp and Giles spun away into the alley. A couple on an evening stroll saw Mark coming after him. When Mark returned to the garage, he packed his gear up and tossed everything in the trash. The few items he kept, he wiped his fingerprints off of. As a final touch, he sent one last warning email to Giles through Plenty of Fish, telling him he had traced his IP address through the messages. Mark told him if he went to the police, he would hunt him down where he lives, when he least expects it, and finish when he started. Mark threw in a line about having cased the garage, that it wasn't even his, and that he never used the same location twice. His last lie was to tell him that he was lucky number 18 on his spree. Mark walked calmly out to his car, got in and drove away, across the entire city back to his home where his wife and child waited for him. Mark knew that even if Giles did call the police, his tracks would be covered. In Mark's day life, he's an independent filmmaker. Everything in that garage could be easily explained away as props for filming a psychological thriller. Still, he couldn't shake the foreboding feeling. He kept thinking any moment he'd see flashing lights behind him asking him to pull over, despite his perfect adherence to posted speed limits and cautious observance of the seatbelt law. Surely the arresting officer would wonder why he was so sweaty and why there was a bag with a hoodie, a jacket, a prohibited stun weapon, and a set of handcuffs in his trunk. But those lights never showed up in his rearview mirror. He checked his voicemail messages and noticed he had two, very unusual for this time of night. One was from his wife, wondering if he could be home by 8.30 so that she could pick up a package before 9. The other voicemail was from his prop guy, asking if he could borrow Mark's airsoft pistol. Paranoia set in. Mark's wife wouldn't care about picking up a package this late. She'd wait until the next day. Could the cops have gotten to her and convinced her to pretend to get him home quicker so they could arrest him? But he had to stop and think clearly. This was all happening way too fast. There's no way that was possible. This wasn't a movie this was real life. Even if the police were contacted, their response time to the location would be in the neighborhood of 20 minutes to two hours, and there'd be no way for them to verify who rented the garage that quickly. Mark's fear subsided and he drove home. 
he practiced his entire behavior pattern should he come home to police cruisers parked along his front yard. He would rush the door in a panic, and upon entering or being stopped by a patrolman, he would appear utterly surprised and beg them to know if anything had happened to his precious wife and daughter. His genuine shock of their presence would start him on the innocent path in their eyes, and then his cover story of being at a therapy appointment would become his short-term alibi, until he could confess to the cops later that therapy was a cover story he gave his wife, so he could have just one night a week to himself. Between that and the total lack of hard evidence, he'd be free regardless. Yet, the nervousness set in anyway. It turns out his wife did need to pick up a package, a Pilates chair that she wanted him to assemble. Every time he heard a car drive by, he'd feel compelled to look out the window. He heard a massive group of sirens get closer and closer and closer. His heart leaped into his chest until he realized there was a house fire somewhere close to the area. Seeing a police cruiser slowly and deliberately pull around his block was the worst part. But then he remembered their neighbor across the street had an itchy trigger finger for calling the cops when the rowdy teenagers next door partied too loudly. A day passed. He spent that day with his eight-month-old daughter as his wife ran errands and kept appointments. Then the day turned to night, and once again he was suspicious, but nothing happened. That was the night he was totally convinced he had gotten off on this one pretty much scot-free. No patrol car would come to take him away, bound in handcuffs to be brought up on assault charges, forever ending his serial killing career. That first time experience was the basis for his revised method of operandi. Previously, he wanted his victims alive and conscious after he had subdued them. He wanted to get information from them like their email and dating site passwords, as well as the pin codes to their debit cards and credit cards. But this priority was now a distant second to making sure he didn't get caught. He got lucky that first time, and he wasn't going to assume that would never happen again if anyone else got loose. He had to revise his apprehension system in order for it to go more smoothly. He decided to ramp up the savagery of his attack, leaving no margin for error in rendering a target unconscious within the first 10 seconds. He dropped the stun baton in favor of the two 24-inch lengths of galvanized steel piping. He was confident that swinging for the fences to the back of the head would do the trick. In multiple cases, blunt neck trauma has caused serious injury and even death. In one particular case study, a 13-year-old girl experienced a fall during gym class that caused immediate unresponsiveness and death. In the absence of an anatomic cause of death, there were multiple possible explanations for it. One was cardiac dysrhythmia, which is an irregular heartbeat caused by malfunctioning of the heart's electrical system. Another explanation for the death was vasovagal stimulus. Vasovagal syncope occurs when you faint because your body overreacts to certain triggers, such as the sight of blood or extreme emotional distress. It may also be called neurocardiogenic syncope. The vasovagal syncope trigger causes your heart rate and blood pressure to drop suddenly. That leads to reduced blood flow to your brain, causing you to briefly lose consciousness. In the case of the 13-year-old girl and other similar deaths, it's believed that the blow to the neck caused this death by the transmission of a concussive force through the reticular activating system. The reticular activating system is a diffuse network of nerve pathways located in the brainstem, at the base of the neck, connecting the spinal cord, cerebrum, and cerebellum, and mediating the overall level of consciousness. Mark would go on a shopping trip the next day to start collecting new supplies. That was when he found himself thinking about Tracy. Oh, his sweet Tracy. Tracy wasn't his wife or his daughter. 
Tracy was his ex-girlfriend. On paper, she was the complete opposite of everything that should be his perfect match. She had two small dogs that she treated like human children, and those people usually drove him up the wall. She also suffered from anxiety and depression, whereas Mark usually preferred what he considered a much more together woman. Despite this, he loved her uncontrollably and always would. They met during Mark's first year in college. For eight years, he thought about her constantly. Several times, he tried to touch base with her to see how she was doing. At one point, he made brief contact after he found her in a Hotmail member search, but she cut things off sharply and quickly, said she was getting engaged, and that was it. He would soon come to find out she hadn't written those responses, but her friend did on her behalf. Two weeks later, Tracy had changed her mind and wanted to get together, but she never reconnected with Mark. He went through one failed marriage in the meantime, and so did she. By the time he found her again, he was already married for the second time and had a child. It started out as a congratulations on each other's happiness, which led to a meeting, which led to every feeling he had for Tracy flooding back to him. The strength of love, the adoration, all of it. It was like a tidal wave crashing through him. His wife Jess was three months pregnant with Chloe at the time and he panicked. A huge conflict of motivation, obligation, and sense of duty overcame him and he actually felt guilt. He confessed everything to Jess the next day, thereby destroying the trust in their relationship. Trust is all anyone has in a relationship, and it's the one pillar everything else is based around. Jess is a very strong, independent person with strong opinions on morals and ethics. Mark was certain she'd dump him, pregnant or not, but she didn't. She made a conscious choice to forgive him, accept his temporary insanity plea, and trust him again. Ending things with Tracy after promising her he would leave Jess for her resulted badly. There was anger, frustration, and heartache. Mark was blocked on Facebook for a long time. A year, in fact. He had all but lost any hope of ever hearing from Tracy again. Then he got the strangest email. Tracy sent him a message on Facebook asking to be friends again. She was engaged again, and just like last time, she was on the verge of ending it. They quickly began a dialogue, and although he told his wife Tracy had emailed him, he also told her that he deleted the message and ignored her. That was obviously a lie. Tables had turned. Tracy knew more about Mark and his situation than Jess did. It wasn't fair to Jess, but she was also in the dark, which was better for her all around. He started seeing Tracy again. First, it was little innocent coffee dates and movies, but it quickly turned into much more. Tracy lived about an hour away from Mark, and logistics were difficult to straighten for their Halloween plans, but he would come back to this problem later. Right now, he had someone to kill and some new methods to try out. He went to his neighborhood Home Depot to find what he needed, and sure enough, in the plumbing section, there they were. Two galvanized steel pipes. He thought he might pick up some hockey tape while he was there in order to create a better grip on one side. He strolled out into the parking lot and got back into the front seat of his maroon sedan. He wrapped the pipe ends in hockey tape for optimal gripping. Satisfied with this, he went home to relax and to set up his next victim. The cool thing about having a child that was only a few months old in Mark's mind is that you could openly tell them anything and they couldn't rat you out. He needed that from his daughter, since anyone else he could spill to would be dialing 911 before he finished. He knew he only had a limited amount of time before Chloe's comprehension got to the level where that wouldn't fly, so he got in as much talk time as possible. Mark enjoyed the sweet alone time he got in his basement computer office. 
Once the baby was snugly tucked away in her crib and his wife was sleeping peacefully, it sufficed perfectly for what he needed to do. His wife is certainly no sound sleeper, requiring earplugs just to conk out and getting up several times during the night. They slept apart, so his disturbing her from getting up was never an issue. In his basement computer office, he fired up his IP address blocker and launched two windows for his dual purpose. Keeping to his rules of never using the same account twice for anything, he opened a brand new email account and he stuck to the majors. Hotmail, Yahoo, Gmail. Something generic. When choosing a username, it always reflected his new alias in some way. If he was an immigrant from Ireland looking for guys with a thing for redheads, he'd use a username to the effect of Irish Fire Cream or something else just as apt. Once the account had been created, he used the second window to launch the dating site of choice. He switched that up to keep it interesting as well. Sometimes he would use a basic free service, and sometimes he would use an elaborate pay service. On this night, he decided on a free site. Now, photos are important. A photo of a girl that looks too professional gets overlooked because it reeks of spam bot. It also caused the guys to ask for more photos, which he would of course not have and would be forced to start from scratch. A handy trick he used is to steal another woman's photos from the same site, but in a different city. So, if he posted his profile originating from Portland, he would do a quick search in Nashville first and find a woman who he would genuinely be attracted to. In this case, he went ahead and chose the redhead from Ireland, going out of the country entirely for the photos. Writing a woman's dating profile was very simple to Mark. He read enough, and they all started to sound the same after a while to him. He wrote delicately sweetly, as a woman would write. He listed a few of the things his new persona was not interested in, and made a few kind comments at the end, and an invitation to message him. This profile was listed looking for dating, which is much more manageable than intimate encounter. When looking for dating, he only had to sift through less than 30 emails throughout the day. But when putting intimate encounter, it's more like 30 messages per hour, sometimes more. That can be good or bad depending on what you're looking for. He was looking for someone to match his needs for a new victim. He wanted a man who was financially stable, lived alone, didn't answer to too many people, and might have some time off coming up. He got exactly what he was looking for. Johnny Altinger was currently single. He clicked away on his keyboard, writing, Silly me, I jumped the gun some time ago and thought I was ready for marriage. Well, I am, just not to her. So here I am, single again, and have no need for this ring. And with that, the ring was listed for sale. Johnny was born in an Edmonton hospital on April 28, 1970. His older brother Gary was a child when Johnny was born. Gary had asked his parents for a baby Johnny, and his wish was granted that April day in 1970. Elfried, Johnny's mother, thought her son was pure joy. She fondly watched him blossom into a nurturing, caring, and quiet man. Despite being bullied as a child, Johnny had a gentle soul and didn't care much what others thought of him. His favorite quote was, Everyone does as they will, in their own time, for their own reasons. Although he spent 10 years away from his hometown, he returned as an adult. As a teenager, he and his family moved to White Rock, just south of Vancouver, near the U.S. border. He was German on his father's side. His father was an auto upholsterer, and Johnny soon developed his own love for cars. He named his kitten Diesel because it purred so loudly, and by the time he was 18, he owned half a dozen different old vehicles. Johnny grew up having an interest in computers within an emerging world of online communication. 
In the 80s, Johnny contributed daily to virtual bulletins where users could read and post messages. This early social network allowed Johnny to make friends across Vancouver that shared his interest in music and cars. He frequented a bulletin called Shoreline. He also loved playing fighting games online, even donning the nickname Magnus in honor of his favorite Transformers character. When Johnny's father passed away, he moved back into the family home to look after his grieving mother. Three years later, in 1998, Johnny left his pharmacy warehouse job to return to his hometown of Edmonton. He had dreams of becoming a helicopter pilot and even reconnected with an old classmate named Dale Smith. It didn't take long for Johnny to convince Dale to buy a computer, and soon they began talking every day and playing paintball together. Johnny quickly realized that the cost of obtaining a helicopter license would be hefty. He started working at Argus Machine after taking classes at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. His position was in quality control, where he confirmed that the steel pipes and connections being shipped out were meeting company standards. Measure, 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 and measure some more, is how he described his usual 4 p.m. to 2 a.m. shift. By 2008, Johnny was in his late 30s. He started balding, and to hide it, he shaved his head regularly. His two close friends at work, Willie and Hans, heard all about his love life. His dates often occurred through dating sites, and they never knew about his failed wedding engagement. This was a new phase of life for Johnny in many ways. More and more, he began searching for meaning, and during his newly single phase, he used this time to introspect and learn. When he wasn't working, he was reading New Age books and watching movies about spiritual enlightenment, philosophy, and different religions around the world. He didn't let the failed engagement prevent him from looking for love, though. He liked the convenience of dating websites. While he didn't go on many dates, he had a great time meeting new potential life partners anyway. He sent a message to a beautiful brunette named Deborah on Plenty of Fish, and the two hit it off. They met for coffee and were soon calling each other regularly. The next time they met for coffee, Johnny confessed he had feelings for Deborah and asked her if she would want to date. But Deborah only saw Johnny as a friend and wanted to keep it that way. After their discussion over coffee, it all became too much for Deborah. She'd come home after a long day with a voicemail from Johnny, asking if they could talk about their situation. It was then that she decided that she was no longer going to continue to respond. Johnny continued on his dating journey, and he eventually matched with a redhead on vacation from Ireland. This was no actual woman that Johnny had stumbled on, however. It was Mark Twitchell. They exchanged messages back and forth, but when it came time to move in for the invite, another curveball came Mark's way. Johnny wasn't available Friday, only Saturday. Mark chose Fridays because he had a fake appointment with an imaginary psychiatrist. It was a very convenient and perfectly credible cover story, though, and he saw the merit in keeping the illusion going for the purpose of his late-night freedom. So, every Friday night, he would leave the house and prepare for a kill while his wife was convinced his shrink was working his magic. He even added the special performance of seeming lighter and more relaxed when he walked back into the house. It was only partially an act since he did in fact feel good about his evening, just not in the way that Jess quite expected. Starting a kill on Friday seemed ideal for Mark. For one thing, most people aren't hard and fast expected to be anywhere on the weekend, which gave him three days to clean up and tie up the loose ends. He wasn't quite sure how to deal with his new friend's schedule change. He thought to himself that starting over and slamming on the gas with a different profile entirely in order to stick to the plan would have been the best idea. But he had already groomed Johnny and felt profile mattered more than time of day. He decided to leave it open and sleep on it, deciding what to do in the morning. 
Friday morning came and his decision was made. He would scrap yesterday's escapade and start over fresh. He found some new photos of a girl from LA and whipped up an intimate encounter profile. Then something happened he didn't expect. A pleasant surprise among the hordes of emails. He got a message from Johnny. When Johnny logged on to Plenty of Fish that morning, it didn't take him long to come across a profile for a gorgeous brunette named Jen. Amongst the four photos on her profile was her in a bikini on a beach. Jen was looking for an intimate encounter that evening, and Johnny decided to send her a message. Although he had told Mark's other account about being tied up on Friday, he was seeking something with more immediate gratification for the time being. It was all Mark needed to see. He flirted back and forth like it was an art form. Finally, when enough messages had been exchanged and he felt comfortable with his comfort level, he invited him in. It crossed Mark's mind to use his other account to message him and entice him into this night as well just to watch him squirm, but Mark would watch Johnny squirm plenty in person. Jen told Johnny that she wanted to meet up but was concerned for her safety. Her message read, Although this sounds exciting, I have to make sure you're not some kind of weirdo, and so far you seem fairly well put together, but anyone can lie online, right? So I have an idea for how both of us can be made more comfortable with the situation. And by both of us, of course, I mean me. LOL. I bought this, well, let's call it a handyman special. I'm all about a resale. And the back gate is a little screwed up, so I locked it off and everyone's just been entering through the garage, so it works out okay. When you see it, you'll know what I mean. If you do this, I can direct you to the house from the alley without giving away the street address and see you before I let you in. Maybe this is paranoid on my part, but I have to look after myself. My first instincts about people are never wrong, and I know to trust them. I want to play very much, but I have to be cautious, as I'm sure you can understand. If you're okay with this, let me know. If not, we'll have to miss each other. On a lighter note, though, if we really gel, you said you had four days off. How long can I keep you for if I choose? Maybe you should pack for a few days. LOL. Jen. He bought it hook, line, and sinker. The time was set, 7 p.m. Mark told Johnny to park in the only driveway that looks like a forest. He also told Johnny to close the garage door upon entering and to be aware that it may look cluttered because of a friend using it as a workshop for the weekend. It was around 5.30 p.m. when Willie messaged Johnny asking if he had any plans for the evening. Johnny proudly told Willie that he was getting lucky that evening and sent Jen's Plenty of Fish profile over MSN Messenger. He told Willie that he was meeting her at 7, but that the instructions to her house were very weird. Willie asked Johnny to elaborate, to which Johnny explained that Jen wouldn't give him her phone number or address, only directions to get to the garage. Willie thought it was odd and asked Johnny to text him the address when he got there. Half an hour later, at 6, Johnny copied and pasted Jen's directions into an email and sent it to Willie. Then he called Dale and told him about his date and the directions to the garage. Dale wasn't really privy to the intimate details of Johnny's dating life, but he wasn't ecstatic about Johnny going to some random garage. Dale told Johnny to call him when he got there so he could get the address. The kill room was still perfectly set up from the last time, plastic sheeting hanging from the walls, on the floor, and of course around the table, duct tape sealing the seams to create a bubble to work within. He put that useless stun baton away and stretched his body out to limber up. He donned his black and gold mask, pulled his hood up, and waited. The lights were still on inside the garage. It was 6.47, and Mark had a little time, so he got himself psyched up for the main event. 
Suddenly, he heard the rumble of a car engine and sharply turned to see the wheelbase of a Mazda slow and then continue. Mark's adrenaline soared. That was him. Johnny was early and Mark knew he had to have seen his feet at the very least. He decided to stick to the pattern anyway. Mark shut the lights down and waited behind the curtain he had rigged up to shield him from sight, his two pipes in hand. He ran entirely on sounds now. The car's engine silenced. There was a brief pause where all he could hear was a distant sound of traffic lightly dancing in the background. Then the door opened, footsteps followed, and the car door slammed shut. Another pause. Mark could hear the crinkle of Johnny's clothing as he crouched to get under the door. He stood up and said, hello? He froze. This was new. He'd never heard anyone call out hello to a black empty room before. Johnny assumed Mark was still here and he was right. After all, he had told Johnny under his alias that there would be a guy using the garage for the weekend as a workshop. Mark quickly took the mask off, setting it on the weaker secondary table he used for a laptop. Without any other plan, he began acting. Hello, Mark called back in a cheerful tone. Mark moved to the light switches and illuminated the room. I'm Mark, he said pointedly, not sure what else to say exactly. I'm a local filmmaker, preparing a set that's supposed to look like a serial killer's little area here. You might have heard of my stuff. I'm the guy who put together the Star Wars fan film at our local film festival. I hadn't heard of that, said Johnny. Mark went into super friendly mode, even showed Johnny his prop gun and how it wasn't real. Mark quickly mentioned that Johnny's date was running a little late and she would be back in about 20 minutes. Johnny said he would come back. For 20 minutes, Mark paced back and forth, considering what to do, weighing the risks and the benefits. Mark thought Johnny could be on the phone to one of his friends revealing the address and telling them all about what had happened. On the other hand, Johnny had met Mark now and Mark felt that was an advantage. Still, when the 20 minutes were up, Mark chickened out. As Johnny's car pulled up for the second time, Mark whipped out his cell phone and in another grand performance, pretended to talk to his alias over the phone. Mark delivered the bad news that tragically looked like Johnny's date wasn't going to be able to make it. And with that, his victim left. Johnny walked right out the door that should have been closing on his doom right then. Mark took stock of his situation. He was standing in the middle of a perfectly prepped kill room and was actually going to let this go down a strike too. He already had the room set up and the whole night was his to do with as he pleased. He jumped back online to find someone who was willing to drop everything and head over right away. His newest account had over 200 messages. After 25 minutes of perusing, he still had nothing when his twice escaped victim sent him a message. Mark's immediate reply was a huge apology and an offer to reschedule for the next day. Johnny's reply was to come over again that very night. Johnny didn't live far and didn't want to waste his time any more than Mark wanted to waste his. Mark stared at the laptop screen, unmoving for half an hour deciding. Finally, he went for it. Mark typed a message back with a quick apology for the delay and an invitation to come back. He meant business. Crouched, poised, Mark had a whole new plan. No mask needed this time. He would just pretend to be poking around at the back of the set and then slam Johnny unconscious. His survival would be a bonus, but not necessary. When Johnny arrived, he played into Mark's plan perfectly. Johnny reappeared through the garage door and Mark soon followed. I guess I'm just a glutton for punishment, Johnny remarked. Mark replied, you have no idea. The room filled with the echo of the pipe crashing into the back of Johnny's skull. That one single motion was the end-all be-all. 
Mark had committed now, and there was no going back. The jig was up, and it was kill or get arrested for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, maybe even attempted murder. But Johnny didn't drop like the sack of potatoes he was expecting. Mark continued thwacking Johnny over the head repeatedly, but it only seemed to fuel Johnny's adrenaline. Johnny began screaming at the top of his lungs, Police! 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 And Mark completely lost it. His fury doubled and he blasted him so hard with the pipe that blood spattered everywhere, but primarily on him. Johnny hit the floor, but was still conscious. Despite receiving several mortal blows to the head, the shock and adrenaline of the situation gave Johnny the fire to fight back a little. I've had enough of this, he said, as he feebly and dizzily tried to grab the pipe away from Mark. Mark's anger resurged. He wrestled the pipe from him and that was the last straw. Mark pulled his hunting knife from its sheath and watched the shock on Johnny's face as he saw the blade and thrust it into his gut. His reaction was pure Hollywood. The lurch forward with the grunt was dead on TV movie of the week. Mark didn't even notice the garage door was still partly open, but no one came. No one rustled, not even from across the alley. The little notices that Mark sent out to the neighbors about shooting thrillers at the garage did their job and no one paid attention, assuming it was a scene or something. Oh, it was a scene, all right. Johnny moaned and groaned, and Mark plunged the knife deep into his neck. Mark let Johnny bleed out right there on the floor, away from the plastic sheeting specifically put up to avoid that sort of thing. Mark was standing there covered in blood. It was all over his face, his hoodie, his coat, and his jeans. He was holding the murder weapon in his hand, standing over what would be, in moments, a corpse, and not nearly enough time to make it go away. He got his things ready and did the only thing he could do. He waited. He waited for a sign on what to do next. He waited for the fast approach of sirens as a cue to leave and come up with a good story for later. He waited, and he was rewarded with silence. Sweet, sweet silence. Mark got lucky. No one freaked out. No one reacted, no one inadvertently witnessed it, and no one called the boys in blue. He was home free. He assessed his situation and went to town on his improvised solution. He had a dead guy that needed processing, so that's what he did. He processed him. Mark remembered thinking as he hoisted Johnny up onto his table that he should really stick to smaller guys from now on. But Mark got the dead carcass up on that table and he got his game processing kit out. It contained a butcher knife for the hefty meat, a fillet knife for smaller works, a skinner, which might come in handy for scalping the skull, and a serrated saw for the bones. There was also a pair of scissors and a cutting board. He had the cleaver there from another order he had placed. Mark decided the best course would be to go from the feet up. First, he pulled out Johnny's wallet and keys and placed them on the computer table. Then, he used the scissors to cut his pants apart and pull them away. Mark had a 45-gallon steel drum host to a contractor-grade hefty bag where he was putting all the items. He cut Johnny's shirt off too, but left the underwear. Mark poked and prodded the joints to find the path of least resistance. He began cutting the legs off at the knees, all in one piece. He didn't even bother to take his shoes or socks off. The knife went through flesh like it was nothing. Mark was surprised at how utterly non-resilient human tissue can be. Even the tendons and ligaments separated cleanly. There was almost no blood. Not surprising since the grand majority of it was pooled on the floor, thankfully soaked up primarily by Johnny's jacket, which had come off during the struggle. 
Mark put the severed leg in the trash and moved on to the thigh, which was essentially the same routine, only thicker, more fatty. Mark noticed that it wasn't nearly as horrendous as the media made it look on TV or in movies. Dismembering a human body was a relatively unexciting event, but Mark had his ways of making it more fun. He sang to himself as he worked, talked to himself, reflected on the new tools he would get to make the next one easier. He took Johnny's arms off at the elbow joint and used the scissors to cut off fingertips for added confusion in identifying the body. Severing the head was also a simple matter, and going through the vertebrae in the back of the neck didn't take much at all by going through connective tissue. The torso was surprisingly heavy all by itself, and he cut that in two pieces across the diaphragm. Human intestines just look like one long roll of uncooked sausage, as opposed to the gruesome mileage of stringy nastiness they appear to be on film. Mark was surprised. Funny sounds and pressure releases took place on the table as the torso sank. Once the body was in bags, he started the cleanup process. He took down the plastic walls from his bubble, which surprisingly had almost no spatter on them. Then he started to roll the plastic on the table, and to his chagrin, noticed it had very little effect in keeping the blood off the table's steel surface. Mark soldiered on, cleaning up all of the plastic. He tore his green cloth backdrop down and placed it over the larger blood pools on the floor after he picked up the soap coat and trashed it. The green backdrop went into the trash next, and then he began his stain removal process. He had two bottles of pure ammonia that he dabbed into paper towels to wipe away small stains. The spatter was everywhere. There were dozens of small spots on the floor and tiny streaks on the walls in the big door. He wiped them all away. The only downside of using the ammonia was the fumes, which he didn't smell so much as feel like a cold winter breeze shooting its way through his sinuses. Mark kept away from the ammonia and wore a mask whenever possible. He wiped his table clean, scrubbed the areas on the floor that needed it, wiped his computer table down, and noticed a few tiny spots had made it onto his laptop. He wasn't impressed, but knew they would be easy to spot clean. Next time, the whole room would get bubbled, not just the half for his kill room. He'd used a plastic sheeting normally chosen to cover living room furniture when painting walls, but it obviously didn't suffice. This time, he used a single layer of mid-grade quality stuff. Next time, he would double layer the high-grade material for sure. When he got finished, he looked down in horror at the sheer level of blood staining his clothes from head to toe. Mark couldn't walk back into the house like this. He had extra clothes in his car he could change into, but that wasn't the point. But surely there would be a smell, and he couldn't get all the blood off of his face. Not all of it. His phone rang, the familiar buzzing of its vibrate setting going off. The caller ID showed it was Jess calling. He answered. Hi, baby, what's up? Not much. Where are you? I'm just leaving the gym, hon. The gym closes at 9. He checked his watch hurriedly. It showed 9.57 p.m. His mind raced. He couldn't get caught in a lie. Not again. What are you talking about, babe? It closes at 10. The big gym by our place? And there was his window. He had switched gyms when they moved to their new house, so it sorted itself out as he jumped back in to play the game. No, my old gym, babe. I thought you canceled that membership a month ago. I procrastinated and did it a few weeks ago, but I still have a couple weeks this month that are paid for, so I figured I'd take advantage since it takes an hour to cross town anyway. Mark's wife was not stupid. It took a lot to convince her of an elaborate lie. When she caught him surfing internet dating sites, he spun a quick tale of how he was just researching for an article on online dating he got through a freelance website. 
Fortunately for him, he really was a member of the freelance site already and could prove that part. The next part was much harder. Jess wanted proof upon proof. Mark had to manufacture an entire person and created a fake employer, ran out to get a prepaid cell phone, and then hired an actor to do a role play on the phone with him, on speaker so Jess could hear it. Then he had him leave a voicemail message as this person so that if she called the number, it would sound legit. Mark went through great lengths to bring his wife over to the comfortable belief he wasn't cheating on her, but him hiding anything was the problem. Even safely believing in his fidelity didn't matter next to the dishonesty of hiding the article from her in the first place. And so their trust issues flared up again. Now every conversation was an interrogation, not just a simple question where she could take his answer at his word. There had to be back-checking involved. So he waited for her response to his explanation, and after a short breath, Okay, well listen, on your way home, can you pick up a case of ready-made baby formula at Chopper's? Will do. Anything else? In his mind, he begged for her not to ask him to get her a late-night latte. All he needed was to walk into a Starbucks in mismatching attire, dried blood across his face and hands. That sort of thing people notice, even if they feel too awkward to ask questions. No, but I'll probably be in bed by the time you get home. I'm so tired. Finally, a break. A silent, dark home to come to where he can go straight to the basement, throw his coat, hoodie, pants, shoes, socks, and shirt straight into the laundry, and shower any remnants off of him. Fantastic. I'll see you tomorrow, then. Okay, bye. He packed up his laptop bag and then opened the garage door. Half expecting a team of police cruisers to be waiting outside, but the alley was empty and silent, save for the Mazda parked in the driveway. He took the keys and got in, discovering the car had manual transmission. Mark had never learned how to drive them, but necessity's the mother of invention after all. He probably stalled the car a good ten times before enough trial and error got him to the point where he could manage to get it inside the garage. He laid a plastic sheet across the hatchback floor and put the body bags in the trunk. At least the car was clean and empty. After a quick search, he found Johnny's cell phone, turned it off to avoid pings sent from the police to track it, and made sure there was no GPS turned on either. He locked up the garage, went out to his car under cover of night, and changed clothes, stuffing the blood-soaked ones into his duffel bag. He changed shoes as well. Another glance at his watch gave him the realization the store would be closed by the time he got there, and sure enough, by the time he reached the other side of town, he was way too late to buy formula. It was the last of his worries. Mark had a pretty normal Saturday, watching his daughter while Jess tended to personal errands. Mark really hoped his daughter wouldn't end up like him. He remembered an episode of Dexter, his favorite show, where the flashback showed his father showing Dexter cat scans of a human brain. He identified the differences between a serial killer's brain and a normal person's brain. Up until Mark saw that, he was convinced that what he was was his own decision, his own path. But now he truly wondered if he had little choice at all, and if genetics played a bigger role. Logically then, it should have occurred to him that those traits have a possibility of being passed to his offspring. Sunday was all set up for more family merriment, much like the Saturday before it. Mark began to feel restless and wanted to move on to the next part of his overall plan for Johnny. He woke up at the crack of dawn and left the house. Neither of the ladies would be up for another three hours, and Mark had a person to erase. He drove across town to the south side, not for the kill room this time, but for the home of his victim. He found Johnny's place without pause, parked in front of the building, careful to examine surroundings and make sure that there was no video surveillance. 
It was still early morning, and comings and goings were common in the area. He wore his hoodie to cover his head and face, and gloves to leave Prince out of the situation entirely. His shoes had just come out of the dryer and were spotless. He used Johnny's keys to enter the building, cautiously watching for video surveillance, and strolled down the hallway until he found the door he needed. He knocked first, just in case for whatever reason there was someone inside. There wasn't, and slowly he entered the place, closing and locking the door behind him. It was a simple one-bedroom apartment, somewhat clean save for a few dishes left out. It represented a single man perfectly. Motorcycle gear, a big screen TV, a computer desk, a nice barbecue, and some online gaming machinery. He found cash on the dresser which quickly found its way into his wallet. He searched drawers and shelves for anything else of interest, putting everything back as it was. Then he sat down at the computer desk. He wasn't sure what he would find. He was hoping some basic searches would yield passwords or something, but Johnny had done him one better. He left himself signed into everything. Messenger, Outlook Express, his online dating profile, and his Facebook all had the passwords auto-saved. Mark changed the auto-response on Johnny's email. It now read, Hey there, I've met an extraordinary woman named Jen who has offered to take me on a nice long tropical vacation. We'll be staying in her winter home in Costa Rica, phone number to follow soon. I won't be back in town until December 10th, but I will be checking my email periodically. See you around the holidays, Johnny. Next, Mark emailed a resignation to Johnny's job. The email read, Greetings. While I've certainly enjoyed my time at Argus, I have another offer that is just too good to pass up, so this is my notice that I will no longer be continuing my employment with your fine organization. I thank you for the opportunity and rest assured, I would not be leaving unless the new path I've chosen was completely life-altering. Thank you, Johnny Altinger. He changed the status on Johnny's Facebook account to reflect the change and then proceeded to delete Johnny's online dating profiles from the different sites he was on. Mark's phone rang. It was Jess again asking where he was. He said he had gone to his parents to pick up a few tools for working on the downstairs bathroom and that he would be back in an hour. Conversation over. But he had an afterthought. What if the police ever did track this back to him and checked his cell phone records? They would see the towns his phone picked its signal up from and notice he was in the area. If the garage he rented wasn't already a few streets away, that might be a problem. He hurriedly packed Johnny's laptop up and took it with him. He also took his multifunction printer and threw it into a dumpster because the email Mark sent him with direction to the kill room had been printed on it and wouldn't do to have that be recoverable by the police. But Mark did find something in the printer that would help. A letter to his insurance company with a clear, unmarked signature on white background. He could easily use that to forge a bill of sale for the car. If the authorities ever questioned him about it, he could corroborate his own story. Yeah, officer, it was the strangest thing. This guy approaches me on the street and tells me he met this phenomenal woman, a real sugar mama, who's going to take care of him and that he doesn't need his car anymore. So he asks me how much I have on me, and when I tell him I've only got 23 bucks, he says, okay, deal, and I end up with a free car. Armed with his new toys and info, Mark headed home. His next problem was what to do with the body. It's not like he had an ocean to dump it in, or a boat for that matter. What did that leave? When you live in a landlocked city, what are your options for making 230 pounds of dead human go away? Incineration. Mark had looked into buying an actual batch incinerator, something with the pressure and heat needed to get the job done. 
The problem with those is that they cost upwards of $5,000 to acquire, and he wouldn't be in a position to make that purchase for another month or two. He had a can of gasoline in his trunk and a steel drum, though. Close enough. Monday morning, he had some free time to himself, at least until about 4.30 in the afternoon, when his wife expected him to be back home. To keep the illusion of his day job up, he would leave earlier on Mondays to pretend he had to be in a Monday morning meeting. Mark went straight to his kill room. He lined the trunk with plastic sheeting and stuffed the body bags in. He laid the drum across the back seat and stuffed his garbage bags into it to save space and extra trips. He took everything to his parents' house. They were gone during the day and had a nice fenced backyard for privacy. He doused the first bag, which contained the torso pieces, in gasoline, after dropping it into the barrel. He lit a match and tossed it in. The instant whoosh of flames consuming flammable liquid exploded from the top and the burn began. He had placed the barrel squarely in the center of the yard. It was broad daylight, but everything was sealed in bags so no one could see anything, especially not the burning process. Mark had heard that there's no smell like that of burning flesh. If he had had a better sense of smell, he imagined the scent to be reminiscent of barbecue steak mixed with singed hair. Mark found that when you cut up a person, you realize we're really no different than animals. We're just sacks of meat at the end of the day. The internal muscles and tissues of the human body look a whole lot like steak, actually. In fact, if properly trimmed and packaged, Mark believed most people would have a hard time telling them apart. Mark's biggest issue now was the complete lack of effectiveness this method of disposal had. As if that weren't bad enough, he heard sirens in the distance. Now in his kill room's neighborhood, sirens are customary, and it's time to worry when they aren't heard on a nightly basis. But in this nice, sweet little schoolyard area, sirens meant something significant. Someone spotted the smoke and called the fire department. He now had two very big reasons to put the fire out. He doused the fire in water, extinguishing it immediately. The smoke dissipated, and almost as if the fire crew knew exactly what was happening, the sirens stopped. It could have been a massive coincidence, but Mark heavily doubted it. All he knew was that having the fire crew pull up to the house and start poking around was not an option. Granted, a charred and cut up torso looks somewhat similar to a couple pieces of big beef, but any closer inspection would expose him, and that just wouldn't do. When the smoke cleared, he found that the body bag had melted and some of the edges were charred, but for the most part, the body was still intact. Some of the skin hadn't even been cooked. He knew there was no way the organs were affected. It would take a week to burn the waste unrecognizable at this pace and use more gas than he could afford. So he rebagged everything, loaded it back into the car, and took it back to the kill room. Realizing that incineration was completely out of the question, he had to change strategies. He decided to cut the body into smaller pieces and dump it in the river that ran straight through the middle of the city, creating an impromptu border between the north and south sides of town. He didn't have time for that the same afternoon. It would have to wait a day or two. Good thing for Mark, he was still plenty busy that night when he left his sleeping wife and child to see Tracy. She had to work in the morning, but Mark slept in for a bit. Some time after she left, he packed up his things and left her spare key under a statue on her front porch before he took off for the day. He had work to do. It was time to assess the situation again. He had a hatchback with body parts in the trunk locked inside a garage he still had to sweep clean. He had waste to dispose of and tracks to erase. 
He had no idea who Johnny had talked to in the interim periods between his first arrival at the kill room and his last. So for all Mark knew, some friend of Johnny's out there could even have the exact address or at the very least detailed descriptions of how to get there. If he ever figured out a safe, quick way of rendering his victims unconscious at another location without witnesses or forensic evidence left behind, he would do that. But for now, this system was fine as long as he stuck to the strict adherence of the plan. He headed straight for his kill room to deal with his mess. When he arrived on the street of his kill room, he approached cautiously. As each time prior, there was no fanfare of police and ambulance gathered around the front or the back. No one had accidentally found anything and called it in. No weird smells were emitting from the place, and very well shouldn't be, considering everything was sealed and still fresh. He got inside and prepped for what his day would be like. He began by taking the bags out of the Mazda and placing them on the floor next to his butcher table. He double-sheeted the table this time, placed his processing kit, his cleaver, and the galvanized pipe at one end, his ammonia, cleaning supplies, and paper towels on the other. He placed plastic sheeting around the table on the floor as well, and moved the steel drum over within leaning distance with a brand new empty hefty bag in it to catch the waste. The next step was to prepare himself. He wouldn't allow any blood and guts to get on him today. He used some of the plastic sheeting and duct tape to fashion a makeshift apron for himself. He picked up new, much higher grade plastic abrasive cleaner, resistant gloves, and then duct taped two grocery bags around his shoes to keep them clean. He wore a basic white painter's mask to keep fumes away from him and take some of the edge off of the ammonia smell. He picked up the first bag and set it on the table. He put his cutting board on the table to prevent his knives from accidentally puncturing or tearing holes in his plastic sheeting. Then he took out one of the arms. It was stiff and cold, rigor mortis having set in by now. It was also quite brisk outside that day since it was fall heading into winter. Mark chose the butcher knife to start out with and simply shaved the meat from the bone in a downward motion. He didn't bother getting every single shred since he knew that once dumped in the river, it would rot off in a timely fashion anyway. When it was cleared, each slab looked like a cutlet sitting on the table. He put each chunk on the cutting board and used the fillet knife to slice them into even smaller pieces. When he was satisfied with his medallion-sized portions, he tossed them into the garbage bag. He repeated the process with the legs, thighs, and upper arms, routinely shaving the meat off them, placing the bones in a pile, and filleting the meat into small pieces before tossing them into the bag. When the bag got somewhat heavy to lift easily, he closed it off in the same fashion as the originals and got a new one. Once in a while, he would take a break, check his email, answer a few phone calls, check the status of his eBay page, and have a bag of chips. When he realized two hours had passed, he decided to get the rest of the waste dealt with as soon as possible. Every couple of body parts, he would need to clean and sharpen his knives since they were doing a lot of work going through so much material. He decided to do the head next. He sliced the face off in several different pieces, cut the ears and lips up so that again, they couldn't be visually identified. This way, if someone did see it floating in the river, they would think nothing of it anyway. Once the flesh was removed, he used the pipe to knock out the teeth, eliminating dental records as a form of ID. He broke the jaw after that and used the scissors to cut the ligaments, ripping the jaw clean from the knife and its multiple pieces held together only by the tissue at this point. He used the knife to destroy the eyes as well and then rammed the pipe into the side of the skull to bust it open. 
At this point, it was fueled only by a curiosity to see the human brain live and in person, since he had never seen it before. He realized he was spending too much time on the head and tossed it into a new hefty bag to move on. Next came the two heavy torso pieces. He began with the lower portion. He removed the intestines first, carved out the reproductive organs and anything else taking up space. Then he shaved as much of the meat off the hip bones that would come off. Removing the skin and flesh in the back was easy. There were the chunks he tried to burn the first time around, so the skin was charred in some places, making it more stiff in some places and easy to cut. He hacked off Johnny's glutes and marveled at how fatty they were for such a slim person. He immediately thought of the movie Alive, and how well the rugby team must have feasted on this part of the human body while trapped in the Andes. But the freezer burn from the bodies being in the snow and frozen solid might have ruined the experience. Once that was processed, he moved on to his final piece, the upper torso. He started with shaving the outside, taking all of the skin, muscle, and fat in single passes like he was carving a turkey. In fact, once everything else had been removed, he was surprised at how closely the chest cavity resembled the overall shape of a turkey. This was the messy portion. All of the blood that hadn't come out was inside this piece, trapped in the lungs, still close to the heart. It dumped out onto the table, not quite enough to overflow to the floor or anything, but messy nonetheless. He used a knife to cut all the tissue around the inside edge of the rib cage in order to free any remaining organs. The lungs, the heart, and the liver all came out. He cut those up too before trashing them. It reminded him of emptying a pumpkin for Halloween. Somehow every single event in his life would have a whole new level of perspective to it. Carving a pumpkin and spilling its guts would now carry a double meaning. So would slicing up a steak, carving a Thanksgiving turkey, or laying plastic down to prepare for painting the family room. This experience changed his sense of place in the world forever. He felt stronger, somehow above other people. He felt like the proud owner of a very dark secret that no one would ever be in on. When the body was dealt with, he used the paper towels to soak up much of the blood spill on the table so it wouldn't flow onto the unprotected floor in the cleanup process. His makeshift outfit went into a separate trash bag, one designated for secondary waste, not body parts. All table plastic and surrounding plastic got rolled up and tossed accordingly. At first, it appeared the double sheeting on the table did its job, but upon final reveal, it turned out he needed to scrub with the stain remover again. High-grade stuff next time, for sure. He felt good about this. His plan now involved simply waiting for dark to come so he could visit a bridge. He opened the garage door, satisfied that nothing conspicuous was showing to the outside, and unlocked his car, which he had parked closer to the back of the door this time for easy transfer. He laid new plastic in his car trunk and placed the new bags in one at a time. Mark then closed up shop and headed for home. It was an interesting feeling for Mark, driving around town with what used to be a human body backed up in his trunk. No one has any idea they're stopped at a light right next to a killer with what could very well be one of their friends, now sacks of meat parts in a hidden compartment. It made him wonder. In all his 10 years of driving around, had he ever unknowingly passed a vehicle or sat parked at a red light next to someone just like he would be one day? It blew his mind. He stuck to the posted speed limits, signaled when he changed lanes, and didn't push any yellow lights whatsoever. He got home without incident and went through his evening routine with ease. His alarm clock woke him up gently to the soft sounds of the Easy Rock station. He geared up, 
got everything he needed to get going, including a simple steak knife to cut the bags open quickly. He silently moved through the house and out the door. He got into his car and took off. There were two bridges over the same river he knew how to get to off the top of his head that would make suitable locations for the dump. He got to the freeway bridge at the stroke of 5.30. It was still pitch black with no sun in sight. Right away, he knew he couldn't do this from the bridge itself. There wasn't enough shoulder to stop without turning on his hazard lights, and that would have attracted a cop car like a moth to a flame. There just wasn't anywhere to hide. Coming off the bridge, though, there was a path marked by a sign that showed him a potential boat dock. Upon closer inspection of the area, though, he realized it just wasn't suitable. The only way to get to the water's edge was by traversing a very steep slope covered in loose rocks. He also wasn't comfortable with the layout under this bridge. It was too dark to tell, but there were boxes everywhere that he couldn't identify, and if he wasn't sure it wasn't a surveillance camera, he didn't want to take the chance. He left the same way he came in and moved on to his next choice. This one was more rural further out of town between two farming communities, and would have been ideal except that by the time he got there his timing was no longer optimal. The early birds had come out to play and the commuters were getting an early start to beat the morning rush hour traffic. He decided to head back to his parents' place and recoup. On the 45-minute drive, he tried to search for a solution. He asked himself if burning wouldn't work and a bridge drop was out, what other way could he dump these parts in a safe, unseen way? The sewer. No one ever goes down there. The body would rot away completely before anyone discovered the bones, and by then, it would be way too late to identify the person. Once again, everything got lighter. He chose the eastern suburb of the city to dump Johnny Altinger's remains. It would be practically a ghost town, with most of its residents either having commuted to work in the city or otherwise occupied and away from their homes. Within a few moments, he found exactly what he was looking for, a manhole cover placed off to the side behind a power pole. He parked in an empty driveway and popped the trunk. Although it was broad daylight, he wasn't worried. He removed the hefty bags one at a time from the trunk and walked them over the three paces it took to reach the sewer. With each bag, he sliced the tops off and turned them upside down, letting the pieces fall into the sewer. He heard the splashing sounds as they touched down. Mark rumpled the bags up, put them back in the trunk, and then closed it. He got back into the car, fired it up, and took off. His total time there couldn't have been longer than three minutes max. He drove back to the kill room to finish destroying evidence. Once there, he packed his trunk remnants into a garbage bag and put everything else in there that needed to burn. Documents from Johnny's car, receipts, even his empty chip bags. He had five hefty bags full of garbage that would actually burn plastic sheeting, cloth backdrops, and paper towels. It may not have been good for the environment, but Mark thought one less person creating pollution for whatever 40-some-odd more years he would have walked the earth more than even that out. This time, he burned garbage for a solid three hours, making sure nothing was left, and he didn't hear a single siren in the neighborhood. By October 17th, Johnny's friend Dale was fed up with not hearing from him. Dale felt that there was something deeply wrong. Johnny wasn't impulsive, so he would never leave on a vacation for several months without plenty of planning beforehand. Plus, he hated the heat, so why would he ever go to the Caribbean? Dale and a couple of his friends went to Johnny's place and found that one of the windows was open. When they finally got inside, they scoured the place. Among the items left behind in Johnny's home was his passport. This was all the proof Dale needed that something was truly, utterly wrong. 
After going to the police with Johnny's passport in tow, a missing persons report was filed and a case number was assigned. In the following week, Mark's life quickly turned upside down. He had been questioned by the police about Johnny Altinger's disappearance. After all, the directions Willie received in the email Johnny sent led straight to Mark Twitchell's kill room. Mark woke up early on Halloween morning, his favorite day of the year. It was about a 20-minute walk to his usual coffee shop, so he headed out after zipping up a jacket. At the end of his street, a white van sped up in his direction. After stopping abruptly, a group of officers in full tactical gear leapt out of both sides of the van and yelled for Mark to get on the ground. Mark was under arrest for first-degree murder. It would take about two years for Mark to reveal the location of Johnny's remains. Mark asked through his lawyer to meet with Edmonton homicide detectives. When they arrived, Mark passed over a single sheet of paper, folded in half. There was no further discussion than the officers left. On the paper was a Google map of a North Edmonton neighborhood. Below the map, Mark had written, location of John Altinger's remains. Also written were detailed directions to a sewer grate in an alley, followed by Twitchell's signature. The next day, a recovery team found the remains of a human body, and on April 12, 2011, Mark Twitchell was convicted of first-degree murder. Johnny Brian Altinger never got the chance to find the love he was searching for. He was a quiet, kind, and passionate man who was loved dearly by his family and friends, and that's something Mark didn't count on. His remains were interred at Victory Memorial Park in Surrey, British Columbia. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next story from the mortuary.